The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. Today's episode is a conversation I had with Sean out of Virginia. He started his career as a volunteer in the Buffalo area, spending 12 years as a volunteer before embarking on a journey as a career firefighter. He is currently assigned to a ladder truck as he approaches his 30th year in the fire service. This conversation was one I was looking forward to. Sean has always been someone I respect and look up to in the department. I first met Sean when I was a rookie in a neighboring first due. I had the chance to work with him on details and a variety of calls. He never shied away from speaking his mind in any situation, a trait that I both admire and share. He was as quick with a compliment as he was with the necessary critiques, a true fireman's fireman, if you may, and unfortunately, a dying breed. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Are you uncomfortable? Yeah, comfortable as can be, at least because it's weird to have a mic in front of your face. Yeah, it's different. Kind of neat. Yeah, it's well. Let's see. I always, I keep butchering stuff. So I sat here like 20 minutes, 30 minutes trying to do an intro for Marshall and Brian. And it drives me crazy just talking to myself. <laughs> All right. So we'll go ahead and get started. All right. Today we're sitting down with Sean. He's out of Virginia. He is coming up on 30 years of total service in the fire department between career and volunteer. He uh, volunteered in Buffalo for a few years and then came to Virginia to work as a career firefighter, I'm going to let him introduce himself, maybe give a little background on his family and his history, and then we'll get into our discussion. How you doing, Sean? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, I've, I volunteered for 12 years and actually trained for four years before that as a junior fireman before going active at the age of 18. So from 14 to 18, was drilling and training every week and I just waited for the chance to get to do to get to the show, if you will. And my dad was my dad joined the volunteer fire department a couple of years before I was old enough to be a junior. From as soon as I was eligible and old enough, I got involved and my, actually my mom joined the volunteer fire department as well. So it's been a family affair for us all along. And uh, it's been, it's been a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And so in, in 2005, I always knew that I was meant to do this job. I always knew that that's why I'm here. I was hired by Prince William County in 2005 and, and here I am coming up on 17 years this month. What's the th last 30 years been like? What, what kind of experiences? How do you find yourself? Yeah, it's been different. It's, well, it's, I've seen a lot of differences, I guess is what I'd say. It's it been a lot that's, that's changed not only with how we do things, tools, equipment, techniques. I've seen so many things even come full circle back to how we used to do them after changing it. And, uh, but one thing that's been the constant really is the type of what we do, the incidents that we run, the, the things that we see things that we see and, uh, and have to process and, and keep going. 
when you were a junior, were you running calls or were you just training? No, we didn't run calls. We weren't able to run calls until we were 18. So we were just uh, doing the training. Like I said, at least once a month, at least every, or uh, once a week, rather, at least every Saturday. Sometimes we were taking other classes, certified first responder, things like that. And then 18, you slide into the volley house and go full bore. hundred percent. So what's that as an 18 year old in a volunteer house in Buffalo? It was great. It really wasn't, honestly, there really wasn't any big surprises. For me, everything was how I thought it would be. I was hungry. I was aggressive. I wanted to run calls. I wanted to learn. I wanted to train. I wanted to be part of as much as I possibly could in, in all aspects of that department. And I was a certified EMT almost right out of high school. I got my diploma from high school. And a little bit after that, I got my EMT card. And I'll never forget the very first call that I ran right after that. I was the only EMT on board for that call. And I was right away pushed into the lead guy at 18 years old. That's that was a, the very first call I ran. the gig at 18. It was different. There was, there was a bit of, a, of an oh shit moment there because now I'm the person. I'm not looking to somebody else to tell me what to do or show me what to do. I'm the guy. And, and it was as scary as it was at the end. It was also pretty cool. It was pretty cool. So is there anything that stands out in those 12 years in Buffalo? There's pros and cons to, to everything, right? I love being on the job and there's certain things that I feel are better about being on the job as a career firefighters. And, and there's certain things I feel a little bit better on the volunteer side. And the one thing is on the volunteer side is I feel a more sense of a sense of family. It's been 17 years since I've been part of that organization officially, but they still consider me family and I still consider a lot of them family. And when I go back there to visit, I'm always welcome there with open arms and good times at, and then I, that's one thing I really do love about it. Yeah, I got a little bit of experience under my belt from June. And when I got my EMT card, I ran a bunch of calls and uh, with the volley company and then come January of 93, I was hired by a private ambulance service in the area and they covered the city of Buffalo and one of the suburbs. And I remember sitting there in that classroom going through new higher orientation. I, I didn't know shit about the city really. And a couple things they're talking about just blew my mind. And I, I was like, what? I'm thinking, I remember thinking, what am I doing here? What did I get myself into? And they're talking about when you knock on someone's door, where to stand in case they start shooting through it or come out with a knife or. When you're walking down an alley at night, how to hold your flashlight so nobody, if they shoot at you, hopefully they'll shoot at the light and miss you. And I, we're the good guys. Why would somebody shoot at us? <laughs> and I definitely wasn't ready for all of that, I don't think. But I got through the new hire, the orientation and everything. And then there I was, not even 19 years old, running calls in, in the inner city. Seeing things that, uh, yeah, I just wasn't used to seeing living conditions and the normal, and I say normal, but the things that come along with the calls that we run and seeing the shape that these people are in, that they call for our help and everything. But like I said, on top of all of that, I seen that more of that than I ever had before. I mean, in my six months of prior experience. And like I said, it's just going into the city, just so many times, just getting back in the ambulance afterwards or after the hospital, taking the person to the hospital. And, just trying to process what the hell I just saw. And what you saw just because of the living conditions or call wise? Just all the above. Okay. Like just everything, everything you need to go through, depending on where you're running these calls and where you're, what actually, what section of the city you're going, just, you see everything you can possibly think of and then some, as far as 
all of the call types, the, the people, the houses, the living conditions, the everything. Anything that jumps out at you that, I don't know, was more memorable than anything else or? I don't really think so it's in the beginning because the whole thing was just mind-blowing. It was just so much to take in and so much to absorb in the beginning. It was so much different from anything that, I guess I really didn't know what to expect. So the first number of years was simply just getting used to it, for lack of a better way to put it, and coming to expect what you think you're about to run into or what you're going to see every shift or every call or whatever the case might be. And like I said, more normalizing it, getting more used to seeing it. So normalizing, desensitizing maybe? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I would say desensitizing. Yeah, for sure. So you make the decision to, to apply for a career department. What brings you to Virginia? How do you end up here? So friends of mine had already been on the job here for Prince William, some only by a couple of years and some by five or six at that point. And as hard as it is to move away from everything that you've ever known and love, even when it's for a job that you love and that you want to do and you're meant to do like I did, it's still hard. It's still hard. And so honestly, one of the biggest draws to Prince William County was having people there that I already knew and have known for a long time to make that much, that transition a bit easier and, and have somebody familiar faces there. So was Prince William the one you targeted or? It was. Okay. It was for that reason, large, mainly that reason. You come to Prince William again, what, 2004 you mentioned? 2005. 2005. How's that start? How's, what's that look like for you? Again, I, this wasn't the first, that wasn't the first process I had been in. It wasn't the first test I had taken. So I knew what to expect as far you know, going into it, as far as the process itself, every place, I guess, does things just a little bit differently or their own tweaks it to their own, what they're looking for. Charlotte did things different than Prince William, who does it differently than Fairfax or whatever the case might be. And so I knew what to expect. And the thing is, there was a lot less people than when I tested in Charlotte, there were thousands. And yeah, I prepared, I, I think I prepared myself as best I could, knowing what to expect. And I felt like I was definitely going to be a benefit, definitely going to be an asset to whatever department I got hired by, but this is where I wanted it to be. This is where I wanted to be. How does your career progress in Prince William? Recruit school was tough, but it was a great experience. I think that you'll find, and I'm, I'm sure most of, most folks will, would agree that have been through it. I think you'd be hard pressed to find some, anything like that, that, that or just the bonds that you do while you're in recruit school, even the people that maybe you might not hang out with on a regular basis, but still there's that bond there that you went through this together and you make lifelong friends. And I feel like those bonds just cannot be broken after that. And it was, so that was a great experience. It was like, a, like I said, that was tough at times going home and thinking the aches and pains and I wonder, am I going to make it through this? And, but then you get out of recruit school, you do make it through it. You force your way through it and you make it out into the field. And from there, it only got better. And I was at a little bit of a slow station when I came out of recruit school and, but I caught my first fire on the line at about two and a half weeks out of recruit school. And it, <laughs> you hear it all the time and people say, yeah, this is the best job in the world. I can't believe I get paid for this. And there I am inside this house with a hand line, putting out fire and, and that thought literally. Cross it, 
runs through my mind thinking to myself, this is awesome. I, I, this, the only thing better than going into a house fire like this is getting paid to do it. This is great. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. The first time you're in one and you're on that nozzle, it's exhilarating. It is. It is. And I feel like the, the adrenaline rush you get at, at that moment of time, just getting ready to make the threshold of that, of the door going in. It's nothing like it. Yeah. So over the years here in Prince William County, we run hundreds and hundreds of calls of all nature. And it wasn't very long ago, actually, I run an out of station four now in Gainesville. And it wasn't very long ago, actually, just less than a year ago, I'd say. And we had this horrible accident and before even getting out of the cab at the rig pulled up and I knew right away, it was one of the very few in my career here in Prince William County my volunteer career and as well as my professional EMS career that yeah, before I'm pulling the brake, I knew this is one of the worst I've ever seen. Definitely top two or three. And I feel like for me anyway, that's something that, that initial, holy shit kind of feeling thought then is that doesn't, well, at least it hasn't gone away for me and, and those types of calls like that. And it takes a second for me to process what's happening and then, all right, got a job to do, go and do it. And that's just what you have to do. That's what we're here for. That's the rumor at least. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's <laughs> what I, how I always thought it was anyway. I know when we first sat down, one of the things you said to me was that you realized it's an accumulation thing, not a necessarily a one call thing. And what were you talking about? And explain that to me. Yeah. When you think of. I think when a lot of people, at least again, I can't speak for everybody, think when a lot of people think of PTSD, firefighters, fire rescue and paramedics, and you think of that one call that, that, that shit went sideways on that bad house fire, that horrible car accident, whatever the case might be. And that's what it is. And, but it isn't. And it took me until just a few years ago to learn that, to, that it's not those, that one or two bad calls where should have done this, could have done that. It's five years, it's 10 years, it's 20 years of doing this job and seeing the shit that we see day in, day out, every shift, pretty much. At this point, your total of 30 years in, are you, do significant calls stand out to you or does everything run together for you right now? There's a handful. There are a handful that definitely stick out in my mind. And that was the one thing that why I didn't realize it when it comes to the whole PTSD thing. And I didn't think that I, that was me. I, I don't wake up with the, I don't wake up from nightmares of seeing, seeing those calls in my sleep. I don't, anything like that. There's definitely calls where I know that affected me more than others. Those calls I remember very vividly, but nothing that really gave me the classic symptoms or of PTSD. And so I never even considered it. I never thought that was something that, that I was going through. And like I said, I didn't learn about that until just a few years ago that, yeah, it's the stuff piles up and piles up. You said that you didn't have the typical symptoms of PTSD. What did your PTSD look like or what does your PTSD look like? I, that's a tough one to answer. Yeah. It, I think mine is more, I get more closed off, I guess I've gotten more closed off. It's, well, that's a tough one. Yeah, because there has to be something that, that identifies it as PTSD, correct? Yeah, 
And again, that's what I have a therapist for. (laughs) (laughs) That's why they were able to identify and I couldn't. All right. So here, we'll rephrase that a little bit. What are the things that have happened to you in life that maybe have been stemmed from your PTSD? Yeah, at some point or another, and I can't really place my, I can't really put my finger on when it was, I just started feeling just bitter, a lot of bitterness. I become, I had become very cynical of so much, almost everything and questioning so much and just, and then anger and it started having anger issues. And that's when things really started going downhill for me is I noticed I was getting more angry more often and that was, like I said, that was especially now looking back and love the, love the saying hindsight's 2020, always 2020. And looking back, you could clearly see what was going on and where things were headed. And, but at the time it's a different story, but yeah, it's, it's just, I just said it was harder. I guess I was becoming harder and harder to be around. And do you identify a time where you noticed that happening? I no, like I said, I wish I did. And I really can't. And my ex-wife said to me once we were having a conversation and she asked me, do you remember that one call? And it was a call that I ran back home. And I said, oh yeah, that was a snot slinger. That was uh, you know, what we called out. Yeah, that was a good one accident. And uh, oh yeah, I remember that one. And she says, well, you were different after that. And I said, really? She said, yeah, something happened, something changed. And I, and she says to me, do you remember this call? And this was one where I definitely placed top two worst ever. Um, and I saw, oh, yeah, I remember that one. That was bad. That was bad for a number of different reasons. <clears throat> and uh, she said, you were more different after that one. I said, why didn't you tell me that earlier? Why didn't you ever bring that up to me sooner? Not in a, I wasn't angry about it that she didn't just wondered and it's, but circles back to what I was talking about with my anger and everything. And she was afraid to bring it up to me because she was afraid how, she didn't know how I'd react to that. She didn't know how I would, what I'd say, or if it would make me pissed off at her or whatever. And, and I understand that now. I definitely get why she wouldn't want to, she wouldn't have wanted to. And, but it was definitely something that made me take a step back and think about. And it's what, it's funny, you know, we know ourselves, they say, you know yourself better than anybody, but. I don't know. The people who we're with like that, they're the ones that see the changes more than we do. I think that kind of makes sense. It's, we don't like to admit those changes and we definitely don't like to admit that the things we see affect us. Sure. Thankfully that's starting to change. So I can see where someone that's close to you would be the first one to see the changes beside you. Yeah. So you mentioned ex-wife. How long were you married? She was married. We were married for seven years, seven years. And we were dating for about seven years before we got married. And we've been friends for a very long time. Unfortunately, we still are. And And do you attribute the divorce to the job or is it outside of the job? I think probably a combination of things, a little bit of both. Yeah, I became, again, I became very difficult to be around and knowing what I did, what I know now, it wasn't just when I come home from work and go and just lay on the couch and veg until it was time to go to bed, wasn't just necessarily because I was tired. There was more going on there that I just didn't realize, didn't know about at the time. And I don't think that she did either. The resentment starts to build and then you have a child and you throw that into the mix. 
and she's the one she's working a full-time job and she's cooking dinner. She's giving the baby, she's feeding the baby. And then here I come home from work and I say hello and that's about it. And I go to the couch and I lay down and watch TV until it's dinner time and then it's time to go to bed. And I definitely understand how that would, that would build some, some angst, if you will. And, and again, at the time, it's just tired. This day work schedule sucks. Just let me lay down. Now looking back, like I said, I realized that was maybe a little bit more going on than just that. What year did you get divorced in? 14. After that, I was on my own for a little bit and things really never got any better as far as all that was concerned. I had a couple of longer term relationships that, uh, eventually ended and were ruined because all those things were getting worse. I'm more angry on a regular basis and it just doesn't take anything to set me off now. And you heard, they say you hurt the ones you love. And so it, it's so unfortunate for those because that's exactly how it goes. These are the people you see every day. And so they're on the receiving end, a lot of, of whatever it is, it we're pissed off about, or if we're not, or if we're pissed off, if not, nothing at all. And they're the ones that have to deal with that attitude, that anger, the yelling, the swearing, the anything that comes along with that. And it's tough on, it's just as tough on them as it is on us in some ways. And those two relationships that I've had since then have now since both ended and it's because I have such a hard time still in getting a handle on things. And for me, my PTSD, my depression and my anxiety manifests itself in anger a lot, unfortunately. And so who really, who the hell wants to be around that on a daily basis? Right? I, one of the things that I, again, that I didn't understand or couldn't understand is why are you upset? How does it, I'm pissed off about this or that, which has nothing to do with you. So what are you getting bent out of shape for? What's, what are you so, I, it's got nothing to do with you, but just being around someone like that, it wears on you, it catches up to you. And it's to the point where. It makes that person hard to function and it makes them hard to do their job during the day and, and just live their life day to day. And when it comes to the point where instead of looking forward to seeing your significant other person you love, you maybe don't really want to, or aren't that excited anymore. Obviously that's not a good thing. When does this start to come to a head for you? I think things really came to a head in, in 2018 and. Now the drinking is on a regular basis and I'm drinking more in, a ter in terms of times a week. I'm drinking more in terms of how much I drink when I go out drinking, or even if I'm just sitting at home drinking. And it's funny that us as medical professionals, if you will, that it, we realize that we know alcohol is a depressant and we realize that the effects of alcohol are not good. Either they're not good on our body, they're not good on our brain, and they're not, they're even worse for our, our emotions. And we all know that, but yet for some reason or another, that's what so many of us reach for and go to the second things get bad or the second you're upset about something or mad or you're having a hard time dealing with something or processing something, grab a beer, go and have a couple beers with your friends, go out to a bar and it, it doesn't help. It only makes it so much worse. Yeah, we had that discussion before we 
quote unquote came on air here. Sure. That we talked about how we turned to drinking because it's the acceptable manner. It's always been the accept acceptable method to to and not to only that, but only recommend almost recommended. Not yet recommended because you're almost an outcast if you're not drinking in these situations. Sure. And other avenues are not allowed and uh, I won't get on a soapbox, but obviously we could use different medications such as cannabis. Sure. If they would start to allow it. So you're drinking the schedule allows you to drink quite a bit. It does. What starts happening with your drinking? What starts happening is again, the, the frequency and the amount of drinking continues to increase. So consequently I'm drunk more and, and then when I am drunk, whether it's at home by myself or I, I would, regardless of where I was coming from and I was drinking, I was getting into my car and I was going home <laughs> and it's hurt all so many times. That's stupid. What if you got pulled over? What if you got into an accident? Doesn't that, doesn't that make a difference to you? And at the time it was, I don't fucking care. If it happens, if I get pulled over, fuck it. If I get into an accident, fuck it. I don't care. Lose my job. Fuck it. I don't care. So just a sense of recklessness. hundred percent. And I've learned and another thing I learned recently is that's some called passively suicide, being passively suicidal. And I don't know if I, I don't know if I agree with that or can say that's where I was, that I wasn't wishing to die. I wasn't even thinking it to myself, if I did die, whatever, who cares? But I was definitely as far as the job and as far as my license, as far as all that other stuff, I didn't care. And it's a indirect self-destructive behavior. You don't think that way rationally, right? When things are quote unquote normal during the day or whatever. And, but you take what's going on in, in your brain already with depression and everything else. And then you throw alcohol and it's like throwing a can of gas on the fire and it just magnifies everything so much and makes it so much worse. But you don't, at the time, you don't think of it that way. You don't look at it that way. Quite frankly, you don't even care. And. So that was, that became the norm for me. And in 2018, that the combination of it all came to head on, on the side of the, on the side of the road, get into a, I'm pissed off at this guy for the way he's driving. And we go back and forth for a while, motherfucking each other. We go back and forth a while before he pulls off the side of the road and I pull off the side of the road and we get out of the cars and we go at it on the side of the road and hammer it out right there. What time of day is this? This is in the middle of the night. Again, coming home from a bar, coming home drunk, shouldn't have been driving at all. And then again, it was one of those, it was one of the busiest main roads in the county here. <laughs> it would have been so easy to, for a cop to come by and, but again, it was like, ah, fuck it. I don't care. I don't care. And so this guy and I, we have a roadside fight right there. And when it ends, he gets in his car and drives away. I get in my car and drive away and feel like that's, it's over with and everything. And, but it wasn't for me. I somehow managed to break my foot while in that fight. And so that puts me out of work for however long, X number of months till I needed surgery to fix it. Then I needed rehab and so on and so forth. And so now I'm already at a dangerous level, I'm already running in the red. And, and so now all I got is more time to sit there by myself with my thoughts and drink. And it just, again, it only gets worse. And 
in that time, my uncle, my godfather, who really meant a lot to me, who I looked up to very much, passed away unexpectedly. He got sick and passed away. And really, like I said, he meant a lot to me. I really looked up to him and I always wanted him to be proud of me. I always hoped that he was proud of me. And and where I was at right there at that point in time, I think, shit, who the hell would be proud of this? Look at me. And so I go to his funeral and his wife was hoping that I would be one of the pallbearers for him. And she sees me hobble in on crutches. Now I can't be a pallbearer. Now I feel like, I feel even worse. I feel, I don't know if I hoped that, uh, that I made him proud. I hoped that he was proud to call me his godson, but I don't know. And now I can't do this. And I feel like I, I can't be his pallbearer. Now I feel I let him down. I totally let him down. And that was something that I really, that only made things worse. I really had a hard time dealing with, I had a hard time dealing with just him, his passing and then putting that on myself that I'm not, I let him down. And that was, it was very difficult on me. It was very tough. And I had a, I felt like I just couldn't recover from that on top of other things that that was, it was a pretty short period of time where it could seemingly a lot of things added up. Well, maybe not a lot of things, but looking back now with the big steaming pile of shit that was already there. And then now you throw a couple of acute things at the ending of a relationship, my uncle passing away, the broken foot, all of these things. And it just, it just got to the point where it just became too much. It just became too much. And again, things I keep using the phrase to kind of come to a head, but here's where I really did. And thank God for the friends that I have typical day off drinking, of course it's a day off because I had a broken foot sitting around the house, cleaning, doing stuff around the house, drinking, and uh, basically continue drinking throughout the day. And this was the day before I was supposed to be going to, to Brad Clark's funeral, line of death duty for those who aren't familiar with the name down in the Richmond area and danced all day long. This, I think with everything else that's going on and the anxiety of going to that the next day, it's just, I needed something and I needed something. I needed to calm down. I needed to try to make the, what's going on in my head, all this haywire. I felt like everything was just haywire and I just needed it to slow down. I just needed to get a good night sleep for a change. Cause of course wasn't sleeping very well. And so I take a decide I'm going to take a warm bath and not before making another drink though. So I bring that over, bring that with me. And I just can't, I just can't come down. And I'm starting to feel like more and more like things are out of control. And I, I take a Xanax. This will help. This is what this is for. And I think when I was in that state, it felt like time was really compressed. And what seemed like 20 minutes, 30 minutes was probably five or 10. And that didn't help. I take another one with alcohol, of course. And before I know it, again, it's not working. This isn't helping. And clear, rational thinking was out the fucking window already by a long time. And so 
before I know it, I don't know how many of a combination of Xanax and Valium I had, I had taken to, just to try to calm down, just to try to slow the shit down in my head. And now uh, add to the fact that I've been drinking all day and taking these drugs with alcohol. Now I'm in trouble and I don't realize it. And like I said, God bless that the friends having good friends that picked up on from text messages throughout the day that things just weren't right with me. And of course, what really threw up the big red flag where they knew something need, somebody needs to go there was when I stopped replying to text, the leave me to fuck alone. I'm fine text. And that was it. I'm done. I'm done texting. I'm done talking. I'm not answering my phone. Now I'm pissed off at that too, that people seemingly I'm pissed off at people care. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. But like I said, fortunately, these guys, they knew something was, they knew something was wrong and it had just probably at just the right time, Adam shows up and all I remember is looking up and seeing him and I was already probably just about up to my nose in the water fading, man. And I don't know if I, if he didn't show up when he did, if those guys didn't come there, I don't know what, whatever could have happened. I don't know if I would have made it out of that tub. And when I sobered up, it, that was a really terrifying thought to me for a couple of reasons. And for me, I've got a 12 year old son and he's the first thing that, that comes to mind. And what if he, what would have happened if he was never able to see his dad again after that, but there's no. And there's no doubt in my mind because of events leading up to that, not just that day, but over, over the course of time, recent time that, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that would have been ruled a suicide. And I can tell you, yeah, I could tell you this day, swear on my kid that that wasn't the intent. I wasn't trying to hurt myself. I wasn't trying to end it all. I didn't, I never even thought about that could be being a hundred percent honest. I was just trying to gain control over the thoughts in my head and I just couldn't do it. And I clearly wasn't doing the right thing and to try to do that, but, and that really weighed on me a lot. I, I thought about it so many times that what if that happened? What would my, what my, what would my son have thought of me as he got older? What would the guys, my, my closest friends and family, what would they have thought about me? What would all my brothers and sisters on the job, what would they have thought about me? And I've seen it. I've seen it when Marcelo saw no other, no way out and took his own life. I saw it and I couldn't believe it. How many people got so angry and he should have done this. He, I was there. He knew he could call. He should have called. He should have gotten help. He should have so easy for all these people that aren't in the situation to say what you should have done and what, and all that, and to have all the fucking answers. But at the time there's, like I said, you get to a point where a really rational thought is gone. And fortunately for me, I don't think that I, I was at that point, but to be honest with you, man, that scares the shit out of me. It scares the shit out of me because Marcelo and I are very much alike. And I like to think in, in the sense of a lot of people, they see the person that's cracking jokes, that's making us laugh. That's having fun around the firehouse. It's making the mood lighter. And I think of myself like that a lot. And so knowing that it got to that point for him, 
that, like I said, that rational thinking was gone, completely gone. There was some short circuit, some kind of a disconnect. It scares me. It scares me because I don't know if you can see that coming. I don't know if right before you get to that point, if there's something that, that oh, some kind of a warning or something, but yeah, it's, it scares the shit out of me. It really does. So your friend finds you in the tub. Yeah. And, and what, what transpires? So uh, they literally fish me out of there and they, they quickly realize that this is more than, this is more than just an acute thing. This is, this, there's something more going on here than just one day of, of drinking and getting upset and going, getting to this point. And Adam knew some folks from the union that, that run the IFS center of excellence in Maryland. And he made a couple of phone calls right there on the spot and stayed on the line with them when he explained to me what it was. I didn't really know. I knew of it, but I really didn't know exactly what it was and that he thinks they think we all think that you need help and they think that this is the best way to, to go with this, that I should, that I need this center. And I do remember agreeing to that. And so pretty much right there, we get in a car and we're off to Maryland at whatever the hell time of the night it was. It was all such a blur to me, the ride there when I first got there and they do a very detailed health screening when you get there. I don't remember it, but they did. And I, they got me a bed, put me in it apparently and passed out. And when I woke up, when I woke up the next morning, I knew where I was. I remember going there, but it did. I didn't recognize anything. And I get up and I'm looking around and I feel like shit physically. I feel like shit emotionally. I just feel like shit. And on top of that, now I'm scared. I don't know what to expect here. I don't know what I'm doing there. Fortunately, there was a guy from the Boston area that evidently sp spent the whole entire night sitting by my bedside because Mike and Adam wouldn't leave if he didn't. <laughs> and big guy, big burly guy. And she takes me starts to show me around a little bit and we have comic relief is such a good thing. It's what snapped me out of things a little bit is he said to me, when he told me he sat there at my bedside, he, he promised those guys that he would, he said, and that Boston accent, if I'd have, if I'd have showed up for you on a call, he said, I'd have fucking tubed you. He said, when you were breathing, you were only sat at about 82%. <laughs> And uh, maybe people wouldn't think that's very funny, but it's, like I said, for me, it's what it snapped me out a little bit and I was able to relax a little. And uh, so then you start getting your feet under you a little bit with the center and you see what's, you start learning what's going on. And there's clinicians there that steer you in the right direction as far as your treatment is concerned, which way you're going to go as far as mental health strictly mental health or there's substance abuse involved there. And so you get a program, I guess, that's developed 
for you and which can includes group sessions during the afternoon, every single day you're doing something there. And so you have a couple group sessions in the morning or one in the morning, two in the afternoon, however it works out. But you also have one-on-one -on -one sessions with your clinicians during the week. And uh, it's great. It's, it is, in my opinion, is the absolute best place on earth for people like us to go to that, that need that help. And they, they work magic there. They really do. And not only the staff, it's the group sessions are great. You learn a lot about each other. You learn a lot about yourself in, in these sessions, but after dinner, it's a, it's like the firehouse a lot. There's a day room, there's recliners, and that's where the real therapy, I think, takes place. You get to talking to guys and you really, you know, you find a, the common thread between, and there's a common thread with all of us there. And you find out what it is with this guy or this woman and the, the, the things that the one thing, the one biggest thing though, that we all have in common there is that everybody wants to get better, but they all, we all want to see everybody else around us get better as well. And it's such a great environment to be in and there's the support is just overwhelming. Unbelievable. I thought that for the most part, maybe that the brotherhood of the fire department was dead, but it was definitely on life support. I thought, and this completely renewed my faith in the brotherhood of the fire service. And I've never seen anything like it before then. And I never see anything. I haven't seen anything like it since to be quite honest. And that's where the real healing takes place after the sessions during a day at night in the day room around the fire pit and getting to know the guys and hearing their stories and you telling your story. And yeah, it's an amazing place. I, I can't say enough good things about it. I really can't. And the thing I tell people that maybe are having a hard time that are struggling is, or whether they are or not, to be honest, I said, I hope that you don't get to the point where that's the type of care that you need. But if you do, please go there because there's not a better place on earth to get the help that you need. And you won't be, you won't regret it. You won't be sorry. So many good things come out, come from there. It really does. When we sat down, I don't know, that was a few weeks ago now, we first sat down to do an interview and talk about the show. You mentioned something that stood out to me and you said it was about comparing trauma. Yeah, that was a huge hurdle for me to have to overcome. And it was very evident to me early on. That was something that if I was going to start to get better myself, that I was going to have to get over. Because every session in the beginning, after I got there, I found myself doing just that. Shit, what am I even doing here? What I'm going through isn't nearly as bad as what that guy's got going on. Oh, this poor guy. Jeez. God, I can't believe that. The, here, what am I even doing here? I shouldn't even be here. And through those conversations after sessions in the recliners or on the fire pit, whatever the case might be, is how you start to, to learn or how I started to learn. You really can't do that because you're never going to, we're all entitled to our own feelings. And maybe I wasn't there in the pile on 9-11 like this guy was, but this is where I started to learn about PTSD and the, the cumulative effects. Okay. I wasn't there in a pile like this guy. I didn't lose a fireman that I went into a house with this guy. I didn't go through what this guy did, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm there because I need help. He's there because he needs help for his reason. He's there. She's there. We're all there for our own reasons that we need help. And once I was able to understand that better, 
and stop that, that comparison and it, it made things a lot better, a lot easier for me to start to get, to start to heal. I was able to get by that, the constantly comparing, it really got things rolling for me more as far as treatment and healing and feeling better and. It's, and it's mostly from the other guys that are there, the other folks that are there and helping each other through all that. And I've never, ever seen the pay it forward concept like it is there. And again, it's, it is all for the right reasons. It's, they just want you to be okay. When I showed up there, it's funny now to think about, but when I showed up there, because I wasn't planning on being there, I get there, I would have a zipper down hoodie, a t-shirt a pair of gym shorts and one shoe, one fucking shoe, because my other foot's in a boot and that's all I had. And uh, this is in the, this was in the fall. This is in what's September, no October. This is in October. So it's still nice out during the day for the most part, but it got cold out during the night. And by the longer my stay there, it started getting cooler even during the day. And I may mention of that to. I call him Chick, the Boston guy who took me under his wing. And I said, that's all I got. Oh, and a toothbrush that they gave me at the medical. At least you had a toothbrush there. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it could have been worse. And after that, man, there were so many times I come back from a session in the afternoon and I find, literally, I find a pile of clothes on my bed that, that Chick went and told people, this guy's, this guy needs help. It's all he got. He wasn't planning on being here. His friends brought him in and that's all it took. And these guys, sweatpants, t-shirts. Yeah, a guy gave me a brand new pair of Nikes because it was a half size too small for him. And his wife sent him, here, take it. I don't need them. And I said to, to Chick, I said, I don't know where any of this came from. I don't know who to thank. And he said, no, nobody needs, nobody here wants that. Nobody needs that. They just, everybody's here for each other. And that, that went so, such a long way with me, man. It really choked me up because I'm not worthy of that. I'm not, why would those guys, why would anybody do that for me? That is a point I was at. I wasn't deserving of all that. And I was, I am. And it took things that, like that for me to realize that, that I am worthy, that I do deserve good things to happen to me too. And, and again, thanks to all those guys there that, that helped me with that. And like I said, it was such, such an incredible long way to, it seems may not seem like much, but man, it was a huge, it was a huge thing in my recovery there. It really was. So how long do you stay at the center? So I stay there for a little over a month, 35 days to be exact. And just get the absolute best care treatment that, that you can. And one of the things I love about it, about that place, the center of excellence is we all refer to it as, is the bubble. It's your safe place. And if you just want to be there and you don't want to know anything that's happening in the outside world for as long as you're there, you can very easily do that. You don't look at a TV. You don't look at anything else. You don't, you just focus on what you need to work on and get done. And, but even if you do know about shit that's going on outside in the outside world, you still have the bubble where you can feel safe, where there's never a shortage of people to talk to, people just to sit down with and people just 
even if you don't feel like you want to talk it and to just, there's going to be someone there that will be perfectly happy to just sit there with you, to let you cry on their shoulder and not want anything in return. And it's, it was like an extended shift at work, right? The only difference being, of course, you're not running calls, but the biggest difference is you don't have to worry about, you don't even think about when you walk out of that room, if someone's going to talk shit about you behind your back or somebody's going to have something negative to say or anything. And cause that's, it ain't like that there. And it's just this amazing feeling to be there surrounded by that kind of love and understanding all 24 days or 20, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the whole time you're there it really is. I, I spoke of the bonds that you make when you're in recruit school and everything. And do you believe me, those are incredibly strong bonds. And, but now having been through both recruit school and the center of excellence, man, it pales in comparison. It really does. These guys, it's almost indescribable. Really it is. But I will also say this is as good as the care is that you get there and the treatment and everything else. It's, it's not a, that's not the silver bullet, right? That's not a fix all. That's just the beginning. And it's not easy once you get out of there, once you're out of that bubble and the safety of the bubble, and now it's, you're on your own. Now it's incumbent upon you. There's no one saying. You got this session that you have to be at two o'clock or whatever the hell time, or you got this meeting with your clinician. It's up to you now to do what you need to do to take care of yourself. You got to use the tools that they gave you to help yourself. And for me, fortunately, they front loaded us about when you leave there. For me, that was the first little bit, week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever, man, it was tough. I'm not going to lie. It was tough for me. I'm glad that they front loaded me with that information saying that it is going to be easy right away. And it wasn't. And man, it started, it started right off the bat for me when I got home and I walked into my house after 35, 36 days. And it was kind of funny to me because the last thing I remember was I had, I was off that day and I was cleaning the house. I was tidying up around the house, doing stuff. And when I walked into the place, it was a fucking disaster area. It was a mess. And again, knowing what I do now, it makes sense because you're that funk, that depression and you, you don't, ah, whatever, I'll get to those clothes tomorrow. I'll put those dishes away later. And for me, it was coming, it was waking up whenever the hell I felt like it. Cause I didn't have to, I didn't have work to go to and coming down and go from bed to the couch and then pretty much back up to bed and all day, every day. And it, and it's, but I, it, that's one thing I remember being surprised about is I thought that I remembered cleaning and when a place was like such a mess and, uh, I don't know, type of moment where it, I thought that I was, I remember seeing so differently. And then, but on top of that, so this was, I got out two days before Thanksgiving and uh, my place is a mess. I don't have the bubble and it's almost started. It almost started all over again, right away. The thoughts in my head and I want, I called my ex-wife and I said, I don't have anything to offer Tyler for Thanksgiving. I'm not going to make a dinner. I couldn't even sit at the table if I wanted to right now to eat. There's so much crap all over it. And 
So just, I, I want him to have a good Thanksgiving. I'd keep him with you. And fortunately she was very persistent saying, no, I think that you need to spend the time with him. And I know that he needs to spend the time with his dad. And so finally I agreed. I said, all right, you're right. Okay. And uh, so I decided that I was going to take him for Thanksgiving, even though I had nothing planned. I didn't have any idea what, what I was going to do or what we were going to have to eat. It wasn't going to be the traditional Thanksgiving meal, of course. So in the meantime, though, my good friend, Mike invites me to have Thanksgiving with him and his family. And, and at first, again, it's so, it was so easy to start falling back into the same old habits. No, I don't want to impose. I don't want to put you guys out on. And again, he was very insistent. I finally agree. And I was so glad that I did. Again, it was, I was welcomed, treated like family, me and my son. And it ended up being a really good Thanksgiving. And I, I, there was a lot for me to be thankful for. And I continued to see it in the support and the, the willingness for people to, to be there for me. And then it helps so much. It really does. What's it look like today? I know you have some things you wanted to talk about the, the fire service and mental health, but what's it look like today for you? It's, it doesn't, it doesn't end. It's sometimes are better. Some days are better than others. And sometimes you get, you, you fall back into a funk and again, it's all on you. It's all on me to utilize the tools that, that were given to me at the center and I consider, I continue to see a therapist on my own and some days are just tougher than others. They really are. And it's not, you don't come out of there free and clear and with no worries ever again. It's sometimes it's a struggle still. What are things that, yeah, one of the things I learned or I've, I picked up on over the years in this field though, is I'm a huge, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge proponent talking about things, get it off your chest. Even if it's not something that, you know, is, is keeping you awake at night. Obviously when you see something that you're not used to seeing and that your brain is not used to seeing that, that you shouldn't be seeing, you shouldn't be seeing people burnt up. You shouldn't be seeing people's bodies contorted in this from an accident or whatever the case might be. And even if it doesn't necessarily quote unquote bother you. Those are the things I feel like you need to at least talk about because you recognize, wow, that's never seen anything like that before. But I don't like the fact that it seems like everything needs to be so formal. Everything needs to have a title. Everything needs the hot wash. We're going to hot wash this when we get back to the firehouse. It doesn't need to be so formal. And I'll never forget the first time I went through that. They took, we had, it was back home and the one accident that I mentioned earlier, they took all of us out of service and took us someplace. And I remember walking in and chairs are in a circle and could get, God bless the people that were there trying to help us because they truly want to help. They want to do something to, to just be there. And so they, they talk a little bit about getting things out and what just happened and they want us to share. And when they open up the floor to us, you get all of us looking at each other.
Nobody wants to say anything. And this is back shit 20 years ago now or so. And so it's not, it's a long time ago, but not an eternity ago where, but that was still what we knew or thought was handle it on your own. And so, so we did, nobody said shit there at the critical incident stress debriefing, because we got to call it something. And we all walked out of there together and said, eight o'clock crab apples, eight o'clock crab apples. We all went home, showered, got ready, went out and got shit faced together. And, but we were all there together. We cried on each other's shoulders. We did what we did, did what people, what people in our profession did back then when something bad happened like that, you saw something not having any idea really of how bad it was. It's not good, but not knowing how bad it was for us. And so since then I have, I've really paid a lot of attention to things like that, to the critical incident stress debriefing team, the peer support team, the hot washes and all that stuff. And I, I see the same thing. We're just, I don't know what we're, if it's just the way we're built, the way we're wired or what, but when you put a group of us together and you more or less are trying to force us to talk, it's just not going to happen. Very few of us are going to be willing to do that. Even if you have the very best of intentions, whether you are one of us and you've been in the fire service or you're a, a therapist that doesn't know shit about the fire service, it's, you've got to get the same results really for the most part. And I get it. I'm not trying to say that we don't need to do that hot wash is stupid or anything like that. But I just feel like you're more likely to get results by just bringing it up in a more nonchalant manner. Get on the truck. If you're the officer <clears throat> and you don't even need to be the officer and that it wasn't, that was a bad call that, that it affected your guys or that you know, that's something that, that you don't see very often. And it could be something as simple as over the headsets on the way back to the station. Boy, that was pretty fucked up, huh? And so I've learned that over the years, sometimes that's all that it takes. A lot of times is that's all that it takes. A little bit of comic relief, maybe, but just a comment going, holy shit, that was bad. To get people to be like, yeah, man, I never saw anything like that before. What's with the blah, blah, blah? Is that normal that, and before you know it, everybody's talking. It's not a therapy session. It's not a formal thing. But everyone's talking, they're getting, whether they realize it or not, getting stuff off their chest and it's helping. But I think too, a big part of it is front loading these new people that are coming in to the fire service, letting them know that not only is it okay to have those conversations, to talk about the things that you see, that it's a good thing to, you should do that. It's necessary because if you don't, like now knowing what I do, it just builds and builds and builds and it'll come to a point. It's at some point it, things will come to a head. There'll be that hair that breaks the camel's back where you just can't, you just can't keep going. You can't keep that shit gets heavy, man. And it, there'll come a point where you will fall. 
And I hope that doesn't happen for you, for anybody that's listening and it, it have a support group, you know, who you can, who you feel comfortable with, who you can count on, who you could depend on, no matter what the time of day or night that you can reach out to and say at three in the morning, man, I just ran this really shitty call and I just need to talk to someone. I just need to get it off my chest because it really bothered me or your crew or your mom, your significant other or a therapist. I don't care who it is, have somebody. I will be there. I've put out there since, as long as I can remember. I've had someone call me at one point that just showed up as a number on my screen. I don't know who it was I was talking to. <laughs> you know, it, and when I came out of the center, I've been very open ab about my experience and I try to be as open and honest and transparent about what got me there. And in hopes that I remember thinking it in hopes that if this helps just one or two people, if it's, this makes a couple people look in the mirror and say, man, maybe I should talk to somebody. Maybe I should do things differently or something. Then that's, that's all I hope for the most that I hope for. And it wasn't, but a shit week after I got out and I stopped by one of the firehouses just to say hello. And before I found myself having a conversation with just a couple of people before I know it. More people are moving chairs over and more people are listening. And one of them actually texted me the day after that, thanking me for being there, thanking for me for sharing my story, what I had been through. And that not only did it make that person realize that I've been going through a lot of shit and I could probably use some help, but apparently the entire shift all talked about it that night. And man, I can't describe how good that made me feel. That's all I want. I want. Try to help get the message out there. Try to let people know, not to sound cliche, but that it's okay to not be okay. We always talk about, and you hear about the stigma. And me personally, I think when it comes to the quote unquote stigma, that it really has nothing to do with anybody else around you, that I'm not afraid that by me sharing my story, that someone's going to think less of me. Somebody's going to think I'm less of a man or less of a fireman. But when I was going through all that, and again, the irrational thinking was really hard to come by that the stigma was in, was my own, in my own head. What the hell is the matter with me? Why am I having so much trouble with whatever, when that guy was with me again, the comparison, right? That guy was with me on that call. These guys have all moved down from Buffalo, just the same as I, they're not struggling like I am. What the hell, what the hell kind of a role model? Am I to, to my son, what the hell kind of boy, Andy should never have chosen me to be his son's godfather, because what the hell kind of a role model am I to him? And the stigma is more in your own head, things like that. Things like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to bother him or her when I'm feeling bad, when I'm having a hard time, they got enough to, they got enough going on. They've got this to worry about. They've got that to worry about. I'm not about. And you'll come up with a thousand goddamn reasons to not call somebody, but, but you got to force yourself to do it sometimes because it's so easy, like I said, to come up with this, that, and the other reason or excuse to not do it. It's just, I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll get to that the next day and everything. And it's all, like I said, it's all part of it, man. It's all in your head. It's all in your own head because there are people out there. Trust me, no matter who you are, no matter who your friends and family are, Trust me when I tell you 
There are people out there that will be there for you. There are people out there that want you to call them when you're having a hard time. There are people out there that you may not even know that. Like I said, myself, you can always call me. You can always text me that will listen, that want to be there because yeah, I've had a very, I had a close friend of mine take his own life and I don't want to go to that funeral again, ever again. And that's another thing with ever being, since being at the center has really resonated that much more with me because there was, there were two firefighter suicides that took place while I was in there that had direct connections to guys that I was there with. And it sucks. It sucks. I remember thinking, I remember feeling so bad, almost guilty because I'm there where I need to be getting the help that, that I know that I need getting the best help care possible. And I felt so bad, so awful for these guys that didn't make it there. They didn't get the help that they needed. Maybe they didn't know it, where to go. And that, that was when I made the conscious decision that I will do whatever I can to help get the word out, to be there, to listen to, if I don't have answers for you, if you've got questions and I don't have the answers, I'll find the answers. I'll, I'll help any way I can. I don't want to go through that again. I don't want to go to that funeral, man. Yeah. None of us want to go to that funeral again. Yeah. None of us. And like I said, the, they say a lot of time that the first step is admitting that you have a problem or that's, you know, and that is true. The first step is admitting that there's a problem, that you have a problem, that that's just something not, I don't want to say there's a problem, that something's not right, that things are not good. But the biggest step is then putting the wheels in motion is doing something about it is making that call, reaching out to somebody. And again, you'll find so many different reasons to not do it. Find the one, just find the one reason that gets you to do it, helps you do it, makes you do it because it's worth it. I think that's a good spot to, to end the story right there. I know you've listened to bits and pieces of my show. Yeah. Have you listened to the ends of any shows? Yeah. All right. I'm going to ask now. I'm going to ask about a, an everyday carry because we call the show the things we all carry, mm -hmm. the stuff we take into a fire, the stuff we take into any call. We bring stuff out with us. We bring stuff out with us just by going to work as well. Sure. Not, not even having to go on a call. Yeah. So what's something that is a physical item that you carry with you every day or something that you want to have with you all the time? Are you talking like call related or something that just helps me? Yeah, just something that you... Maybe in your pocket or, or in the car or wherever. For the longest time, I, when you graduate from the, the center of excellence, they give you a challenge coin. And on the back of that challenge coin is the, uh, the serenity prayer. Okay. And so I keep that on my wallpaper, my phone. And I try to look at that. I try to look at that every day, early in the day as a kind of a reminder. I can't change everything, but to... Give me the strength to change what I can and accept what I can't and basically just be able to move on. So yeah, that's. And then the second thing I like to ask about is a book or a, 
it could be a podcast, it could be music, it could be a person that the, that the audience should be aware of. What's something you have for us? So the book, there's a book called The Rescuer, and I'm right in the middle of it now. And I wish I could remember the name of the author, but I haven't yet completed it, but it's called The Rescuer. And I'm not, first of all, I will say, I will qualify this by saying, I'm not much of a reader. I don't, I'm not the kind of guy that can sit there and read a, read an entire novel in a few days or whatever. But I, the thing I love about this book is it's by a fireman, firefighter paramedic from San Francisco. And uh, Banner spent so much in that book that I've thought either, either exactly word for word myself, or if I haven't a lot that I can identify with what this guy, what this guy has to say and the struggles that he's, that he has had. And when you get to that realization that I need help and that's what this book is about. And I, it's a great book. I highly recommend that. I just looked it up and it's the rescuer. I will link it into the show notes Excellent. for your episode and they'll have access to it. Cool. All right. That's it. And I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate you having me. And uh, I'm just, like I said, I'm just happy to, uh, this is a great thing that you got here and hopefully it helps get the word out to more people and just know that it's worth it. You're worth it. Talk to somebody, get the help that you need, get the ball rolling. It's worth it. You're worth it. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other. <laughs>